Maybe I'm biased, but I believe that we live in one of the most beautiful areas of our country, if not the world. Those of us who live here have the privilege of regularly seeing the majesty and the glory and the splendor of God's marvelous creation. Hopefully, that directs our attention to the Lord. Hopefully, that prompts us to worship and praise. That's what it should do. That is one of the reasons why God has given us creation. He has given us His spectacular creation to point us to Him. But tragically, as you know, most people, people in our world refuse to listen to God's glorious message in nature and creation. Instead of turning to the Lord in worship, praise, and adoration for His illustrious work, many people deny it as His work or they worship nature itself. They worship Mother Nature. They worship Mother Earth. So the time is coming in which God will strike the earth as a judgment on those who refuse to acknowledge Him and worship Him as Creator and Lord. We are told about that time in the book of Revelation, chapter 8. So turn there with me, please, to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 8, in our continuing series, we come to the last half of this chapter. Our text will be verses 7 through 13, but I want us to back up and read the entire chapter. So please follow along as I do that for us. Revelation chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood." A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel 
flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. As we consider this eighth chapter of the book of Revelation, we are looking at the time of the tribulation known as the trumpet judgments. You will remember that the tribulation period begins with six seal judgments. They are described for us back in chapter 6. The seventh seal judgment, which is mentioned here in verses 1 through 6, contains seven more judgments. They are called trumpet judgments because they take place when one of these seven special angels blows a trumpet. As you can see from reading through this chapter, the first four trumpet judgments are directed at God's own creation. This raises a question. Why would God do this to his own splendid and magnificent creation? As I mentioned earlier, I believe that one of the reasons, at least, is because mankind has refused to heed the message of God's creation, and instead they have chosen to worship the creation in place of the Creator. That is an abhorrent thing to do in God's eyes. The Apostle Paul talks about this very issue in Romans chapter 1. So before we consider Revelation chapter 8, back up with me to look at what he says there in Romans chapter 1. Let's go back there for a few moments. Romans chapter 1. Notice how Paul addresses this issue beginning in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold down the truth and righteousness. And maybe at this point we say, Paul, what do you mean? What are you saying? Well, because what may be known of God is manifest or is clearly evident among them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and, the New King James Version says, Godhead, literally Godhood or divine nature or deity. So his eternal power and deity, so that they are without excuse. Here in these verses, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says men and women are without excuse because their problem really isn't a lack of information, no matter where they live in the world, regardless of whether or not the gospel has penetrated their culture, they are without excuse because their problem isn't a lack of information. It's a lack of willingness to follow through on the information they already have in creation. And Paul tells us here that creation tells men about God, but they ignore the facts and they suppress the truth. They don't want to hear the truth because they want their sin instead. After all, most people who have any intelligence at all know that nobody times nothing can't equal everything. It doesn't take a high IQ to figure that out. But men and women willfully 
and purposely come up with evolutionary theories to try to explain away the facts they know to be true. Paul says here that men and women suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That pictures men and women, he's just using the term generically, not men as male, but mankind. That pictures men sitting on the lid of a huge pot to keep the truth closed inside. Now picture that in mind. Taking the truth, throwing it in a pot, putting a lid on it, and then sitting on the lid to keep the truth closed inside. In other words, what that tells us is that people reject the truth with sheer determination. Just as an illustration of this, I've mentioned in the past, back in 1990, the Institute for Creation Research, which was in San Diego, California, was arbitrarily closed down by the Superintendent of Education and the Department of Education. Why? Why? Simply because they were teaching creationism. Alarmed to discover that the state of California had closed the ICR, one Soviet scientist wrote an open letter to the editor of the Los Angeles Times, the San Diego Union, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Sacramento paper saying, quote, we have more academic freedom in the Soviet Union than you do in the state of California, end quote. Not one of those Pulitzer Prize newspapers printed the letter, not one. After some legal pressure was applied, the superintendent of education reinstated the ICR. But what an example of men ignoring the facts and suppressing the truth that they don't want out there. That is exactly why people are so quick to jump on the bandwagon of the the Big Bang Theory, evolution, and atheism. Men and women don't want to face the truth so they can pacify their consciences while they live ungodly lives and unrighteous lives. That's what the Holy Spirit is telling us here in Romans 1. But it clearly states they are without excuse. They will never be able to stand before God someday in judgment and say, God, I would, I would have believed in you if, I, if I'd have known if there, was any, if there had been any evidence that you existed. No, they are without excuse. Creation screams out the truth that there is a God. What does creation tell us about God? Two things are mentioned in verse 20. His eternal power and deity. As I mentioned, the King James and New King James both use the word Godhead, but a, a better way to render the word would be deity or divinity. Creation doesn't really tell us about the Godhead. That is, creation doesn't tell us that there are three eternal persons in one divine nature known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Godhead. But creation does tell us that there is a powerful divine being in this universe. Listen to this quote. At any time, there are an average of 1,800 storms in operation in our world. The energy needed to generate those storms amounts to the incredible figure of 1,300,000,000 horsepower. By comparison, a large earth-moving machine has 420 horsepower and requires 100 gallons of fuel a day to operate. Just one of those storms, producing a rain of 4 inches over an area of 10,000 square miles, would require energy equivalent to the burning of 640 million tons of coal to evaporate enough water for such a rain. 
and to cool those vapors and collect them in clouds would take another 800 million horsepower of refrigeration working night and day for 100 days. That is power in our universe, and that kind of power, says Romans 1, comes from a divine being. So creation tells us about the power of God and about the divinity of God. If people were willing to be intellectually honest, they would have to believe that there is a God, a divine being. Everything begun must have an adequate cause. Hebrews 3, 4 says it plainly when it says, For every house is built by some man. That ought to be patently obvious. I mean, think about it. If you leave this service and you go outside and as you're walking to your car, you see a little Lego house on the sidewalk, what would you conclude? Would you conclude that someone was driving by and they threw a box of Legos out the window and it hit, crashed, and created a house? Not a soul would believe that. No one in our society would believe that. And yet that is the explanation given to how this universe came. You would know that someone made that little Lego house. Maybe you would conclude a child was playing there on the sidewalk and built a Lego house. Well, as you know, this universe is infinitely more complex than a Lego house. There has to be a cause and effect relationship. The cause of limitless space must be infinite. The cause of endless time must be eternal. The cause of perpetual motion must be powerful. The cause of complexity must be omniscient. The cause of consciousness must be personal. The cause of feeling must be volitional or emotional. The cause of will must be volitional. The cause of ethical values must be moral. The cause of religious values must be spiritual. The cause of beauty must be aesthetic. The cause of righteousness must be holy. The cause of justice must must be just. The cause of love must be loving. The cause of life must be living. Order in a system implies an intelligent originating cause, and since our universe has order and arrangement, it must have an intelligent outside cause. Another illustration I've used many times through the years, if you walk into this room and you look up here on the platform and you see this piano, You don't assume that an elephant ran into a tree in which a guy was playing the harp and therefore caused the whole thing to accidentally fall together, ivory wooden strings. That's ridiculous. No one would assume that. Design implies a designer. The theory of evolution is just as unbelievable as someone saying to you, I want to show you my new house. It's great. One day we had a pile of lumber delivered on the lot. We lit a stick of dynamite under it, and it all landed just right. The den is right where we planned. Fireplace and all the bedrooms are all upstairs. The plumbing for the bathroom is perfect. Who would believe that theory? I'll tell you who. Only those who would choose to believe it. I can still remember, I will never forget this as long as I live, sitting in college In a college class, college biology class, very intelligent professor, educated man, he said that if you were to place all the pieces of an elaborate watch in a brown paper bag and shake them, eventually it would become a watch. I just just could not believe what I heard. You can see why Paul says men are without excuse. God in his goodness and grace has given all 
people information about himself in creation. And if they would just respond to the truth they have been given, God would give them more specific truth so they could be saved. Acts 10 is a screaming illustration of that. Cornelius wanting to know the truth, and God moved heaven and earth, as it were, to get the truth of the gospel to him. Beloved, again, I say, don't, don't fear the thought or the idea that anyone will ever be able to stand before God and say, God, if, if, if I'd have just heard the gospel, I would have believed. It's your fault, God. You didn't get the gospel to me. Now, that should not lessen our burden to get the gospel to people. Don't misunderstand me. But the point is that the Holy Spirit could not be any clearer here in Romans 1 that men and women are without excuse. The facts are available to everyone every day and every night. Creation screams out the fact that there is a powerful, majestic, kind creator. But rather than facing the facts, you know what people do in our world. People go to great lengths to find some way to explain away creation. Francis Crick, the English Nobel laureate who pioneered the study of DNA, says in his book, Life Itself, Its Origin and Nature, that the problems of life originated here on earth are so great that it must have come from somewhere else. Well, that's patently obvious. But people still won't face the truth. Australian, Australian scientist Michael Denton in his book Evolution, A Theory in Crisis dismisses creation as a myth, yet he states, quote, I believe that one day the Darwinian myth will be ranked the greatest deceit in the history of science. There is a man who knows that evolution is a lie but still refuses to believe God created this universe. Swedish embryologist Soren Lovetrup in his book Darwinism, The Refutation of a Myth, says, quote, Ultimately, the Darwinian theory of evolution is no more nor less than the great cosmogenic myth of the 20th century. Now, that might make you think that he would embrace the truth of God on the matter. He would embrace the truth of Scripture, but he doesn't. Listen to what he says, quote, Like the Genesis-based cosmology which it replaced, and like the creation myths of ancient man, it satisfies the same deep psychological need for an all-embracing explanation for the origin of the world which has motivated all the cosmogenic myth-makers of the past, end quote. So, he admits that Darwinism is a myth, but then he lumps God's creation account from Genesis right into the same category. Men and women refuse to face the facts, the truth. Writing in Harper's Magazine, Tom Bethel, a scholar at Oxford, recalls the Darwin Centennial celebrations at the University of Chicago all the way back in 1959 when he says Darwin was triumphant. At that meeting, Sir Julian Huxley, the grandson of Thomas Huxley, proclaimed, the, quote, the evolution of life is no longer a theory, it is a fact, end quote. Bethel then traces the decline of the theory in the following years. Darwin's idea of natural selection was quietly abandoned, even by his most ardent supporters some years ago. He closes the article by saying this, quote, Darwin, I suggest, is in the process of being discarded, but perhaps in deference to the venerable old gentleman resting comfortably in Westminster Abbey next to Sir Isaac Newton, it is being done as discreetly and gently as possible with a minimum of publicity, end quote. What he is saying is that those who are wrestling with the data 
are admitting that evolution can't be supported by the scientific facts, and yet this is done quietly because they don't have other options at this point because they won't accept the truth that God created the world. Now, he said that, and that's a direct quote, but it goes back a little ways, and by now the quote is outdated because there's almost been a resurge in re-embracing which illustrates the point that when you try to stay up on this debate and, and, and give quotes, your quotes can be outdated in a matter of days. Because there's always new theories, new, uh, new opinions set forth as to what, how this universe got here because men and women won't accept the facts. So why do people go to such great lengths to avoid the truth? Because if they admit that there is a creator God then they have to admit that they are accountable to that God for the way they live their lives. So, this text says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and therefore they are without excuse. It's not a problem of ignorance. It's a problem of willful unbelief. And whenever mankind goes that route, verse 21 inevitably follows, because although they knew God... They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Man refuses to glorify God. The heavens declare the glory of God, says Psalm 19.1, but men, men and women refuse to give glory to God. They eat from the gracious hand of God daily, but they refuse even one ounce of thankfulness to him. They refuse to glorify him for who he is. They refuse to thank him for what he does. When man goes that route, again, something inevitably happens. When man refuses to acknowledge God as creator, and when he refuses to glorify God, and when he refuses to be thankful to God for his provision, and when he shuts God out of his mind, then this verse says his mind becomes futile. As an example... D.M.S. Watson, the popularizer of evolution on British television, told his fellow biologists, quote, evolution itself is accepted by zoologists not because it has been observed to occur or can be proved by logically coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible, end quote. In other words, what he's saying is the basic reason for accepting evolution is because we cannot accept creation. And thus, verse 22 says, professing to be wise, they became fools. It's really incredible. It's, it's mind-boggling that men can look around the world of nature with all of its beauty and order and design and come up with some kind of system review that eliminates the Creator. In fact, modern man considers it a mark of intelligence to ignore the evidence and to come up with other views. William R. Newell wrote it this way many years ago. He was amazingly prophetic with these words. He said, quote, Human science, through its telescope, observes the vast courses of the stars moving with amazing accuracy in their orbits, but often counts it a mark of wisdom to doubt whether an intelligent being exists at all. 
As an illustration of that, Dr. George Wall was a professor of biology at Harvard. He won the Nobel Prize back in 1971. Commenting on the subject of creation, he said this in an article which appeared in Scientific America, quote, I will not accept that philosophically. Talking about creation. I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation resulting in evolution, end quote. At least he's intellectually honest. He's admitting what he's doing. I will not accept that because I don't want to believe in God. So I will believe in something I know is scientifically impossible. You see, beloved, this illustrates the point that evolution, it is, it, it's a religion. It's a religion that exalts what God has created in place of God. It's exactly what Paul describes here in Romans 1. Verse 23, And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. When man refuses God as creator, man becomes so foolish that he even resorts to worshiping animals. In ancient Rome, the eagle was worshipped. In ancient Egypt, they worshipped the stork and the hawk. The Egyptians also worshipped the bull god, the wolf god, and certain beetles. The Assyrians worshipped snakes, as did many Greeks. You will remember that the Israelites were guilty of worshipping a golden calf. The name of the Canaanite god Beelzebub literally means Lord of the Flies. That's a great god, isn't it? How would you like to choose your God? I will choose the Lord of the flies. It's bizarre. The ancient people worship birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And this kind of thing still goes on today. We, we, don't, we can't cluck our tongues at people in the past. Say, oh, how idiotic, how foolish. It still goes on today. Different form. Maybe it looks differently. Same thing. Modern Hindus refuse to kill or harm most animals and insects. Instead, they worship them as deities or reincarnated human beings. We think that's foolish, and it is. But right here in America, some people worship the stars. Astrology, some people worship tea leaves. Furthermore, much of what goes on in the name of animal rights, not all, but much of it is nothing less than the worship of animals. Some of, not all, some of the environmental movement is nothing less than the worship of the earth. What is God's response to all of this? It is this. Since men and, and women have so prostituted God's gracious gift of creation, the day is coming when he will strike the earth as a judgment on those who refuse to acknowledge him and worship him as creator and Lord. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 8 as we briefly look at the description there by the Apostle John. Revelation chapter 8. It is possible that things on earth have settled back into some sense of normalcy after the sealed judgments of chapter 6. But the silence is shattered when the first angel sounds the trumpet. We pick it up in verse 7. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. 
Because people have refused to hear the message of creation, which God has so graciously given to mankind, God will basically take away the message. They just take the message away. Because people have worshipped the creation instead of the creator, God will mar their idol. It's obvious that God is in sovereign control of this event because he limits the devastation to one-third of the trees, whereas all the green grass is burned up. The green grass will grow back by the time we get over to the fifth trumpet trumpet judgment in chapter 9, verse 4. You know grass, burned grass, does uh, grow back quickly. And it will grow back by the time we get to the fifth trumpet in chapter 9, verse 4, because there God commands the locusts not to harm the grass. Maybe because it's still so tender, fresh, just coming back. But at this point, all the green grass on the earth will be scorched. And a third of the earth's forest will be consumed by fire. What is the cause of this devastation, according to the Apostle John? Well, the verse says, Hail and fire mingled with blood were thrown to the earth. To what is that referring? It is referring to Hail and fire mingled with blood. That's what it's referring to. Now, I know sometimes my observations are amazing. But I don't know any more than that. I don't see any compelling reason to take the text any other way than the way it reads. Verse 8 says, Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire. Notice John's description like a great mountain. It's, he's viewing this. He can't he hardly get his mind around it. So he, he describes things this way often in the book of Revelation. He says it was, it was kind of like, it was sort of like because he's, he's grasping at words to describe what he saw. So he says something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. The reason one-third of the sea will come blood is probably because of all the sea creatures that will die when this happens. Verse 9 says, And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The ships will be destroyed because of the great tidal waves or tsunamis that will result from this massive mountain of fire plunging into the sea. Dr. Warren Wearsby and his Commentary B. Victoria says, quote, This will be an ecological and economic disaster of unprecedented proportions. Considering that the oceans occupy about three-fourths of the earth's surface, you can imagine the extent of this judgment, end quote. Or maybe it would be more accurate to say that we can't imagine the extent of this judgment. Verse 10 tells us, Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Just in case it's not clear to us, we need to state the obvious that this is miraculous. How else could a great star systematically hit a third of the rivers and a third of the springs of water and leave the other two-thirds unharmed? It's possible that as as this star gets near the earth, it will disintegrate and scatter, falling upon a third of the rivers and a third of the springs of fresh water. That may be how it happens. We don't know for sure. We're not told. But what we are told is that it will happen. We know it will happen because the Word of God says it will happen. And by the way, this isn't the only place. 
In case if you're thinking, yeah, but you know, Brian, the book of Revelation, it's so, you know, there's so many symbols and it's so many metaphors. You know, maybe we shouldn't push this so, so literally. Well, this isn't the only place where Scripture tells us this. In Luke 21, 25, Jesus said this about the end times. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Those words of our Lord are referring to the same period of time as this period of time, namely the future seven-year tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week. Let's pause for just a moment to notice how these judgments have unfolded before we finish the chapter. Notice, first, God will assail living plants and vegetation. Then he will strike the seas so that many sea creatures end up dying. And now with this third trumpet, many people die. Plants first, then animals, and now people. Why will God do it this way? I personally believe it will be done this way to give people on earth more opportunity to repent. Will they repent? Skip over to chapter 9 to hear what is said after the sixth trumpet. Because we won't get all the way through the six trumpets or seven trumpets in this message. So skip over to the end of chapter 9, verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which came out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, watch this, incredibly shocking, amazingly shocking, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries. Interesting Greek word. Pharmakai, from which we get our word pharmacy. It's a reference to drugs. You say, well, then why does some translate it sorceries? Because in the practice of sorcery, often drugs were a part of the process, part of the mix. So it could be translated sorceries. It could be translated drugs. They won't repent of their drugs or their sexual immorality or their thefts. That is mind-boggling. For those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, those of us in whom God has graciously granted us a change of heart, God has given us a new heart, when we read something like this, we can't, we can't fathom it, we can't comprehend it. It's because we read it from the viewpoint of a person who has a heart changed by God. And so we realize that, you know, if these things were going on, it would take very little, we would think it would take very little for a person to turn to God. But the story is that they just get harder and harder and harder. Even though God gives people more time and more time to repent, they won't. He goes after plants first, then animals, and then people. Now back to chapter 8. Verse 10 says, Then the third angel sounded, 
And a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. The word Wormwood means bitter. And so there's a little play on words going on here. This word actually can even mean poisonous. Not just bitter, but poisonous. That's, what, that's why one-third of all the fresh water will, uh, why it will become bitter and poisonous. Because people have refused the gracious offer of living water from the Lord Jesus Christ, God will give them bitter, poisonous water. And many men will die as a result. Lest you think that this is overreaction on God's part, lest you think this is excessive, all you have to do is just continue reading through the book of Revelation and you'll see that that kind of response is anticipated and John will record angels and other statements saying that God is not overreacting. God is not being excessive with these judgments. God has given mankind time to repent when the first, second, and third trumpets sounded, not to mention the first six seal judgments in chapter 6, but they don't repent. So now they begin to die. Verse 12 says, Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. In studying this passage, I noticed that many commentators believe that this is a reference to the sun's heat intensity. And that is a plausible take on this, a plausible interpretation, but I don't think that's the emphasis here. Instead of emphasizing the loss of heat... I believe John wants us to see that there will be a loss of light. In my opinion, the key word here in this verse is the word darkened. The earth will have one-third less light than it now has. To appreciate the magnitude of this judgment, all you have to do is go without light for an extended period of time. This may mean that the light during the day will be one-third less bright where it may mean that the daylight hours will be one-third less. Either way, it is a paralyzing judgment. And it's possible, no way to be dogmatic, but it's possible that this judgment is connected with what Jesus said in Matthew 24 when he describes the horrors of the tribulation period. And he makes this statement that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. So it's possible that there is a connection But either way, this will be a paralyzing judgment. Down through the centuries, many people have worshipped the sun, as you well know, the moon, the stars. There are people who won't leave the house in the morning sometimes until they've read their horoscope from astrology. It's their Bible, it's their God, it's what they worship. This judgment shows the foolishness of all of that. God alone is to be worshipped. He alone is in sovereign control of the power of the sun, the moon, and the stars. They are not gods. He is God. And He will demonstrate His sovereignty over them when He reduces their brightness by one-third. Again, I turn to the words of our Lord about this time when in Luke 
21.11, he said this, quote, And there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines, and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights, listen, and great signs from heaven. In verses 25 and 26 of that same chapter, he said, And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, men's hearts failing them from fear. And the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This kind of devastation is almost unimaginable. I mean, think about it, what we've seen here just in these four trumpets. One-third of all the forests burned up. All the green grass scorched. One-third of the sea creatures dead. One-third of the sea blood. One-third of all the ships destroyed. One-third of all the freshwater poisoned. The sun, moon, and stars, one-third less light. It's going to be horrific and unspeakable. But watch this. The worst is yet to come. Because verse 13 says, And I looked, and I heard an angel. Now, there's a manuscript issue here. Some say eagle, angel, either one. Uh, This is a supernatural messenger from God, either an angel or an eagle. I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In other words, this is only four trumpets that have been walked through. There are three more yet to come. What the earth and its inhabitants have experienced up to this point has been terrifying. Jesus said in the passage I quoted earlier, men's hearts failing them for fear. Heart attacks from fear. But the worst is yet to come. In fact, consider this. It is going to be so terrible that God gives us seven verses on the first four trumpets. And are you ready for this? Fifty verses on the last three trumpets. The phrase... The inhabitants of the earth is a phrase that occurs repeatedly in the book of Revelation. It's found 12 times in this book. And if you compare all the usages, you will find that it refers to those who are unbelievers. It is earth dwellers, literally is the way it could be translated. Earth dwellers, as opposed to those who, whose citizenship is in heaven. Earth dwellers, it refers to those who are unbelievers, those who will take the mark of the beast, those who do not repent of their deeds. And what does God have to say to them? Woe, woe, woe. There are three more trumpets of judgment to sound. I say the same thing to you if you are here and you have never yielded your life to Jesus Christ. To you, these words apply. Woe, Woe, woe. The the word comes out of the Old Testament context. Ruin, devastation, judgment. Now you may or may not be alive to face these awful things. We don't know when all of this is going to begin to unfold. But if you die without Jesus Christ, you will face something even far worse than what we've read in this text. 
you will face the eternal wrath of God and Christ. If you came here with a friend, family member, or just out of curiosity, and you don't know Jesus Christ, I urge you with all that is in me, turn to Jesus Christ before it's too late. Let's bow together as we close. Father, you did not have to reveal the future to us. It is your graciousness that you have chosen to communicate with mankind your plans for planet Earth and what you will do and what will unfold. And that is why this book is called The Revelation. You revealed to John and instructed him to write, to record these things, as we find out later in the book of Revelation, to record these things for the churches. That is, so that we as your people could read and understand what you have planned. And hopefully it motivates us even more to seek to reach those around us, knowing that whether or not they would face these things, because we don't know the timing, that if they die without Christ, they will face your righteous eternal wrath. And so, Father, we would pray, if there's anyone here in our midst, anyone who does not know Christ, who is yet to surrender to him, may your Holy Spirit use your truth to bring conviction, understanding, to bring submission, so that he or she would surrender to Jesus Christ in simple, humble, childlike faith. We pray these things in his precious and saving name. Amen.